Welcome to Footnotes to a Novel. I'm Travis Holland. Today, an interview with author Natalie Bacopoulos. She is the author of the novel Scorpion Fish and the novel The Green Shore. Her work has appeared in Plowshares, Kenyon Review, Tin House, VQR, The Iowa Review, New York Times, Granta, Glimmer Train, Mississippi Review, The Michigan Quarterly Review, The O. Henry Prize Stories, and other publications. She's a contributing editor at Fiction Writers Review and received her Master of Fine Arts from the University of Michigan. She has received fellowships from the Camargo and McDowell Foundations and the Sazopal Fiction Seminars and was a 2015 Fulbright Fellow in Athens, Greece. She's also an assistant professor at Wayne State University in Detroit. And now, Natalie Bacopoulos. So, Natalie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Travis, for having me. So, Natalie, your family's Greek. Uh, your father's Greek, yes, uh, but you were raised in the States. Is that true? That's true, yeah. My dad came to the States in 66, and um, so I was born here. I uh, mean, I was born and, in Detroit, but yeah. Yeah, and your father came right before the military coup. Right, exactly. He came right before, and I think the reason I got interested in that period, because I was wondering what was going on in Greece, like I was interested in the politics of Greece before that time and during that time, and you know how what it meant when one, some, when one person in a family leaves and the rest stay and live through a, through a moment, and so I was always kind of interested in that period because of that. And you're fluent in Greek. You speak Greek. I wouldn't say fluent. <laughs> I mean, I didn't start learning Greek till I was, um, I think, you know, when my father came, uh, th- this is not a n- n- common experience, but it's not uncommon that um, I think most people I know who have a Greek parent learned Greek growing up, but my dad really, I think, wanted us to be American. Um, so we didn't speak Greek at home at all. And so I didn't learn Greek till I went to Michigan for grad school. So I, I learned it very formally. So I don't really have, I would never call myself fluent. I understand most everything. I can read pretty well, but speaking for me, I get really nervous. I still like, I'm aware of myself as a non-native speaker. You're also, you're a professor of creative writing in the States, and you also teach writing workshops in Greece. Uh, and you've done that for a number of years. I imagine with the exception of this year, Yes. Yes, this was the first summer in a long time that I haven't had some kind of teaching going on in Greece in the summer, or one of the first summers in a really long time I haven't gone to Greece. So that was a strange experience. Of course, against the backdrop of what else was going on, it was a small misfortune (laughs) compared to everything else. So you've you've actively cultivated this this connection that you have to Greece, this is one you've cultivated. You sought this out. You've worked. You worked to, to learn the language. You've, you've done research about it, extensive research, I can imagine. Uh, and you travel there and you teach. You have students who are Greek. Uh, and did you grow up? Uh, can you speak a little about, about what first you drew you to Greece? Or did you grow up visiting Greece as a, as a kid? Um, not really. I mean, I went once as a four-year-old. And then again, I went when I was about, not until I was 19. And th- when I was 19 um, is when it really kind of grabbed hold of my imagination. I spent a lot of time there um, just with my cousin, 
living with my cousins. Um, and that's when I first really became aware of the space as an adult, as opposed to, you know, as a kid traveling with your parents. Um, and then after that, I went basically whenever I could save up enough money to go. Um, once I started um, thinking of myself as a writer and started graduate school and started working on my first, what became my first novel is when I really started to go every year, try to make a point to go every year. And I think I sort of came into myself as a writer, as I came into sort of a Greek self at the same time. And so the two things became almost inextric inextricable for me. And so my imagination seemed rooted almost in Athens more than anywhere else. And I think just because of the way those two things converged, my learning of the Greek language, my studying Greek, and my writing about Greece, kind of all, I came into both those selves at once. And I imagine that process, process that, that evolution, that coming into oneself, that continues to this day. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I mean, it took 10 years of learning Greek or studying it for me to even be able to follow a movie without subtitles or a television show, um, to follow a conversation at dinner. And even now, sometimes, you know, I have to ask people to repeat things or to, to translate something. Um, and so I feel like it's a process. It's also because I'm a little bit lazy with my language study and to learn a language well, you just have to dedicate the time, just like learning the violin or anything else. And because I find it so easy to revert to English if I need to, the the kind of privilege of that, that sometimes I think I haven't pushed myself to really learn it. I mean, I, I've, I've learned it, but pushed myself to, um, I don't always feel comfortable speaking Greek. And so I'm kind of always evolving into that self. But each year, I feel a little bit more comfortable in a conversation. And I imagine when you travel to Greece, there's a certain amount of jet lag when you first get there. Is it a couple of days before your mind is quite, you are in that place? Or do you jump right in? Do you feel like you, you step right into? I think I step right in, but I also love the, uh, the kind of ritual of arrival. Like I get in all jet lagged. And the first thing I do is, um, you know, go buy some coffee and some chocolate and some beer and like something for breakfast and like the basics, like the, the, the healthy basics of like when I get into a place and usually if I'm like renting an apartment or something like that, um, kind of get a sense of my, my space. Um, and so I really love that transition, but you know, for me to be a, there, there was one time I think I flew in and then the next day I had a job interview over Skype, um, and I did not get the job, but I was so disoriented. <laughs> I mean, just asked about, you know, who are some of your favorite writers? And I'm like, I can't think of any writers. Like I read a novel, two novels a week, and I could not think of one book, you know, um, of, of like, of something like that. So um, jet lag is, and as I get older, jet lag becomes more, more of a problem. <laughs> it takes me longer to, to adjust. Yeah, I was thinking about it because I'm, I'm uh, writing about that now, a character who's sort of deeply jet lagged and and it really does put you in a particularly strange mental space and and i do remember being uh traveling overseas to spain or russia and being so jet lagged i knew the language i i you know i knew what people were saying but uh my brain was so foggy that i i just had to revert to english at a certain point i, I couldn't even process what was happening it's a it's a rather strange place that it puts you, isn't it? And travel makes you so aware of time in such a weird way. Like, I woke up this morning in Ann Arbor, and now I'm in Athens. And each time I go to Athens, it's the same kind of ritual. And so I think, 
oh, wow, here I am again, except another year, another year. So I'm, you know, 25, 35, 45. And I just keep remembering that last self, you know, coming into that space. And so when you travel a lot, I think you think of time in such a different way. Yes, absolutely. Or time and space, I guess. Yeah. Time and space. Absolutely. Um, and your first novel, The Green Shore, you write, you write so vividly about the 1967 military coup, which led to years of violent political repression and untold suffering. You put us, you put your reader there in that time. Before you wrote that novel, you had spent some time in Greece, right? But what was your research process like for The Green Shore? Uh, did you interview people who had I been did. through the dictatorship? I did talk to a lot of people, but mostly people that I knew or through other people that I knew um, because, I mean, because first of all, as an American, I think the American involvement in all the dictatorships of that period was pretty strong. And so there was, of course, a kind of, uh, you know, an understandable hostility toward who's this, you know, American girl, so to speak, this kid or whatever, as I, as I was seen when, you know, talking to an older generation asking us these questions about a, a regime that most likely they, you know, that her country had place in kind of puppeting up as a, this kind of fear against, you know, uh, the communism and the Cold War and everything. Um, and so there was, and there's a lot of, you know, pain from that period, a lot of shame. And um, so that was, I was asking questions or asking people to tell me stories um, without really thinking, or I guess I didn't think enough about how, at, until I started doing it, how, difficult certain things would be to talk about. Um, and a lot of the, um, and you know, whether I would go back and write another historical novel about a place in which I did not live, I would really approach it much differently because I guess I wasn't thinking so much of that I was writing myself into a painful cultural and collective memory. It's a different space, right? And, and so I would really think about how I did that again next time. But I had the naivete of a first-time novelist, and I was like, I want to write this novel, and um, I, I was really interested in the period, and I hope that I, you know, did it with with a kind of generosity and and um, and sensitivity. Um, but a lot of the research I did was also just um, well, I had a lot of letters from my aunt who lived through that time, my dad's sister, um, and she would just write me these long letters filled with details of the period, even down to the clothing people wore and things like that. And then I, you know, I just relied on on uh, oral histories, history books, um, things written mostly in English because at the time my Greek was not that great, and so reading things in Greek took a lot more effort for me. So mostly I relied on things in English. Um, luckily, at Michigan, the special collections, the library there has the, one of the largest um, political protest uh, literatures, like a collection of about political protest and a very specific question called the the Piros papers about the um, response to the military junta outside of Greece. So all the, anything written in the paper, any of the kind of um, political activism that was happening in Europe and in, in, in the States. Um, so I just had, had access to so many like letters and, and documents and Amnesty International reports and all that kind of stuff. So Michigan was a good place to be writing this novel or that, that novel. And you talk about the, the trepidation that you felt about putting yourself writing about uh, a, a very painful chapter in, in Greek history. Did, were you aware of that as you were writing? Did you become aware of as you were interviewing people? Um, was it something that in retrospect you thought about? Uh, were you intimidated by it while you were writing it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I was intimidated by it, but not as much as after I was done, I thought, oh my God, what have I done? Um, and I think some of it was, I mean, it was interesting talking to some people, and I think this is the case, is that sometimes people would say, um, oh, you know, it was a dictatorship, but you know, everything was orderly. Like that's always the defense of dictatorships is like the trains run on time. It's like, really, that's the thing that we want out of life is like order. Um, and, you know, we hear that all the time now. And, and, and uh, you know, the idea that a fascist state is one that builds roads to me is just really a big problem that that's the defense for fascism um, or, or whatever, that there, there's order. But um, but also some people, depending on their political affiliation, if you were not, you know, a journalist, a writer, a, a poet, a, a politician on a certain side that, that veered left, you know, maybe you didn't notice as much what was going on. And some people would say, they go, well, you know, if you were, you know, just not really that involved politically, you just went about your daily life. And that also interested me too, because depending on who, people who are really affected by it, were deeply affected by it. And I also think that there's a kind of you know, nostalgia sometimes the other way where people say, oh, it wasn't really so bad, right? Or, or, or we weren't, we didn't notice much difference, or there were things that came out of it that were good. And that, of course, I think that's a, a smaller, you know, I think that kind of response might be a, I don't know where that came from, a, a defensiveness or, or um, coming from maybe, you know, a, the right saying that, that things were fine or, yeah. And, and, and how does, uh, how does Greece reckon with its that particular part of its past now? And and I ask because in certain countries, um, say Germany, Germany is is certainly reckoned and continues to kind of reckon with its past. But you go to places like uh, Russia, and there's a, a kind of amnesia almost about what happened. There aren't monuments to the people who were purged uh it, it's rather striking what's striking is what's not there and how how does greece how has greece dealt with that that particular part of its history i think most i, I don't know if i if i have enough um knowledge to truly answer this question but i think most would see it as a, a dark time in its history but on the other hand um there is a nostalgia for there's a certain kind of nostalgia that often is linked with a kind of, I guess, white supremacy often, or like the, the, the uh, neo-Nazi party Golden Dawn for a while gained seats in parliament, um, which was shocking to so many. Like, how could this party that's speaking in this Nazi rhetoric make its way into a European parliament, um, knowing what we know now and what that kind of rhetoric did, did to Europe? And there was also a huge Nazi presence in Greece, right? Which was not, which was also another terrible period. Um, and so I think when that happened, there was a lot of discussion about this is, they're using the same rhetoric of the junta. There were people that were, you know, still linked politically to that time. And, um, and, but recently Golden Dawn was tried as a criminal organization and they're no longer in, in parliament and they don't have that kind of presence. Um, they do, I think, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's still a presence like underground or there's still, you know, guys kind of patrolling and, and kind of uh, taking it upon themselves to, uh, you know, be terrible to immigrants and, and refugees and, and things like that. But they don't have a, a political position, at least, and that's something. And and that actually comes up in your uh, your new novel, Scorpion Fish, right? Where there there is a kind of there are moments. There is actually one violent confrontation. Uh, your narrator's knocked down 
and and that's sort of that kind of spirit that you're talking about the spirit of the what was the uh, organization the golden they're called golden dawn Go- golden it's a dawn political party yeah yeah yeah, and I mean, there there was a time that I was in um, the center of Athens in Syntagma, and I saw a march coming. And there's all, you know, Athens is a city of protest. There's always some kind of march or demonstration or protest. Um, and I was with a friend, and we saw this march coming, and it was chilling to see just the these young people kind of shouting this rhetoric and holding up, you know, swastikas and, and things like that. That um, this was about ten years ago. Um, and this kind of, it's a, is it cultural amnesia? Is it just, is it everyone, every generation thinks they've got some new and better ideas or is it, is it forgetting history or is it a nostalgia for it? Or is it a mix of both? Um, so there is still that kind of, I think, you know, everywhere in Europe and, and here and everywhere through the world, there's this kind of streak of this kind of far right, um, rhetoric that is attracting people. That's just horrifying to me. Um, so what made you want to return to Greece to a contemporary Athens for your new novel, Scorpion Fish? Was it something that you resisted because you had written about Greece before, or did it was did it feel natural to go back? It felt definitely natural to go back. I think that's just like I said, where my imagination is. And every time I'm thinking when I'm thinking of new projects, there's always somehow linked to Greece in one way or another. And I'm just that's just where my imagination will be. But um, a couple of things. The, there's a character in my in the Green Shore, a minor character named Nefeli. And at the time, she's a young um, prisoner on one of the islands. And she's got a really small role. And she's an artist. And she's at the time, she's, uh, I don't think I ever name her age, but she's about 18, college student. Um, and then I was just thinking about how that generation that came of age during the junta would how they might see the world now. Um, and that's where the character in Scorpion Fish of Nefeli came from. She's the same, you know, I mean, it's fictional, but she's the same person in my mind, a woman who's kind of made her own path, kind of living against the, um, even though she's kind of subject to the the sort of politics of the time and the kind of rigid way, the kind of rigid social order um, that she kind of fights up against, she's also been making her own way. And I was trying to imagine a character that was like that. Um, and so that's where she came from. But the this, the kind of seeds of the novel, there are a couple of things for Scorpion Fish. The first one was um, the first one was when I was in um, Athens. I often stayed in a very particular apartment, um, and a typical Athens apartment has um, these balconies, and they're usually adjoining. And so you can sit out on your balcony and have your morning coffee, and the person next to you is probably also out there or putting out their laundry or whatever. Um, and they're usually locked by, or I mean, they're usually separated by just a thin kind of opaque glass often. Um, and I got really fascinated with that space for a couple of reasons. One, the balcony is just this sort of um, this kind of in-between space that's neither inside nor outside. It's private, but it's public. You can hear everything going on on other people's balconies, a kid's, you know, bouncing a basketball and somebody else is talking to his wife and somebody else is inside playing the piano and it's coming outside. And so the, the courtyard kind of comprised all these different balconies. Um, and that space really interested me. And then it kind of became sort of more metaphorical, like the idea of what is public space? What is private space? Who has access to what kinds of spaces? Um, and then I kind of, so it kind of started more with an idea. And then I began to imagine two characters out there um, having a conversation, both 
privately and publicly. And that's sort of, that's when that once I found that structural device of the two narrators talking to one another is where the novel finally took off. And I had been writing it for a couple of years where I couldn't quite find who's telling the story and why are they telling the story and what's the point. And then once I found that, it felt like, oh, now I think I know what the, the novel's about. And you say you were writing it for s- several years, working on it, thinking about it. It's told in the first person. We have Mira's voice and we have the captain's voice. Did either of these voices come to you in that in that time? Were you writing in their voice? What was that process like of finding their voices? Yeah, the, for that's a. I wish I could remember when I first. Um, I mean, Mira's Mira was a character that I had in my mind, but she has so many different incarnations, different jobs, different different kind of personal history, different backstory and whatever. Um, and the captain was kind of new. Like I knew that I wanted Mira to be talking to someone next door, but he was this kind of faceless person, <laughs> faceless, nameless person. And then um, when in 2014, I had, I went um, away to teach with, with my partner. We taught at semester at sea and, um, and there is a kind of a floating university, 600 students, 40 faculty, 100 staff members. And there was a moment where we had a little balcony outside our room. And um, I looked outside, I looked out and the ship captain was just standing out kind of off his whatever space, wherever he would be, just standing there kind of looking like sort of pensive. Um, And I just thought, what an interesting life this would be. You know, you're in charge of this huge ship full of college, university students. And, but just this idea of having a life at sea, which is also, it's kind of, you know, in between space between, you know, you're, you're moving through water and moving through, through kind of this with, with sometimes with no sight of land at all. And so then I'm like, Oh, this guy's a captain. What would it be like if he were no longer at sea? Um, and then I started thinking about the situation in the Mediterranean, which is, you know, for many people, a place of, you know, holiday and leisure. And for many Greeks, just a place to cross to get to an island, um, but also became a very fraught crossing for, for, uh, for refugees and migrants. And so I was thinking about that space as it defined differently, depending on how you've experienced it. And I think then is when I thought, okay, these are the two voices, here's the novel. And then I sort of started it again. So I had several false starts. And then once I found that 2014, 2015, I started sort of reshaping the story of it. And, and, and what you're talking about is a long process and a process where you go at the work again and again and again until it kind of cracks, right? Until it cracks open. Or until- yeah, that's a good way of seeing it. Yeah. And that's an interesting way to think about it because I, I think that sometimes, uh, when people uh, think of writers, they think of the the sort of work coming together all at once, maybe being perfect on the page. But it can be a process where you go at the piece until it kind of yields to you or speaks to you or begins to sort of answer, maybe. I don't know yeah. what it is. So you yeah. stick with it. Yeah, I think. And I think once I realized that, what I was writing had to do with the actual act of telling a story. Like, how do you tell a story to whom, who are you, who's listening to your story and how are you kind of both illuminating some things and uh, obfuscating or obscuring other things based on who's listening and who you're telling it to and how you're defining yourself. And so 
I think in my first novel, I wasn't, I was thinking in such a literary realism way of just, this is third person traditional narration, which I have always loved and still love it. Um, but I think if I wrote that novel again about that period, I would have more of a sense of a narrator being very aware of the telling and the position that I find my, found myself in of like taking these oral histories. Um, and so in Scorpion Fish, I wanted to make Mira as someone who was an anthropologist, was really interested in oral history, but was also starting to feel strange about the way she changed the space and was thinking about how she could tell stories while respecting the other person's stories as their own to tell while still being part of that world. And so it kind of became more of an intellectual exercise, whereas I think the first one was just really traditional, you know, third person narration, rotating points of view. And now I'm getting more interested into some things that are a little bit less, I guess I would never say experimental, but more aware of the meta sense of telling a story, how that's done. And it's just interesting to hear you talk about that because I think about that too quite a bit. There's this, you go at a particular piece of work, a story or something longer and, and there, it could be this, it, it can be a real struggle where you, I mean, it's not about the time you put in or the intensity of thought that you put in. One can do, or the research, you can do all of that. I mean, you can sit at your desk and grind, grind out pages. And yet until you find that key to understanding what is this, what, what's happening here? Like as, as you were just talking about, until you find that key, it's just sort of like hammering on a on a door. Yeah. Yeah. And all the, I mean, sometimes I think about telling my students that when I tell my students that I cut 500 pages from this novel, I mean, there were things that I just didn't use and didn't follow. There's two other novels there. They're horrified. Like, how do you ever finish a novel? And for me, I think I need seven years per project. It's just two years to kind of just, you know, read and think and, and think about setting and think about character. And then another you know, two years to think about world and then, and then finally voice snaps and the, you know, voice kind of emerges from that. And then once I have the voices, I think then I sort of almost literally start over from the beginning and think about why is the story being told? Um, there's a great book by Christopher Castellani called The Art of Perspective. It's one of those little, you know, those little gray wolf books, like The Art of Charlie Baxter has The Art of Subtext. And they're so wonderful. But Castellani's book, The Art of Perspective, about who tells the story and that the story is inextricable from its narrator, suddenly, like, that just blew something open for me. Um, and another one of those books is uh, Stacey Durasmo's The Art of Intimacy, where she talks about like the different ways of creating intimacy um, with the reader. And I was reading that totally um, coincidentally while I was also reading, when I was on the ship, Joseph Conrad's The Secret Sharer, and, um, which, I, which really influenced me thinking about a captain in, in this book. And she was talking about the different kinds of intimacy created in this space on a ship. And it was one of those moments where something's, you, you read something and it goes so closely with what you're writing that it's almost eerie, you know, that, that moment. And, but the way she talks about creating intimacies with readers, with spaces, um, really kind of helped me think about what I was writing. And so those two craft books really um, helped shape the way I was telling a story. So uh, why, did, why do you call him the captain? Why, what, what, what's your thinking on that? Because he, he doesn't, we don't get his name. Right. He's just the, the captain. He's well, the captain. One, I think one time, I think his wife 
uh, uses his name, which is Alexi. Yeah. Um, but I, but I don't use it. I don't know. For some reason, he was just the captain, and and the way that you know we had a captain on that ship, and we called him Captain, the Captain, and everyone called him Captain. Hello, Captain. Um, and I was then thinking about the way um, you know he was. He's defined as Captain. There's the 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 father of her ex boyfriend is a novelist, and she calls him the novelist. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about the way. Um, men in particular are often defined with their profession and women are defined as kind of relationally, you know, mother, daughter, sister, um, wife. And, and so I kind of wanted to play with that a little bit um, because Mira was never um, the anthropologist or, or professor even, right? She was, she was daughter or she was girlfriend or she was whatever. Um, and Nefeli was an artist, but people called her by her first name, Nefeli, you know, like that often, that happens, I think, with both men and women. But I think something about um, the way the men were kind of defined by the thing that they did, kind of, I like that idea. But also, I like the way that I kind of like the sort of sense he's a little bit hazier. He's not quite as um, present as as Mira, or maybe he's even present through her gaze in some way. And so I kind of wanted to to play with that as, as opposed to the male gaze onto Mira. I wanted it to be like her thinking about him in, in a certain way telling his story, even though he has his own voice also, but there's less of it. And you, and even Mira uh, talks about when her students email her, they just say, Hey, or hi, they don't say professor necessarily. So is that that sort of what you're talking about? Yeah. Something like that. And of course, you know, I love my students and I really don't mind when someone writes to me and says, Hey, but I think a character like Mira would be really irritated by that, like particularly irritated by that. Um, and I was thinking about the way it is, I, I do notice it in different, the different ways that students respond to their, their um, professors based on things that I think are, they're not really paying attention to. Like um, I am the generous one and I'm really kind and my classroom is warm, um, but my male colleagues are brilliant, right? And so I was like, but I'm brilliant too. You can't get to this way without being just a little bit smart, right? Um, but I, but I, it's also my way of being in the world is warm or is a certain way and, and just the way that we, we think about those things. Um, I was kind of aware of that when I was writing, but there is a sense of, there's that sense of often um, students will call me by my first name, but refer to my male colleagues as professor so-and-so. And and I'm not sure why that is. And maybe they're referring to me as professor Bukopoulos, but using my colleague's first name, right? Maybe it's just an awkwardness of, of how to refer to other people, which, you know, when someone always says to you, you can call me this, there's always such a relief if you don't know how to address someone, if they just call me Joe or whatever. And so I think it could also just be a, an awkwardness there. But, but I think for Mira, she does, she's just kind of had it with the academy and, and the hierarchies and, and the sort of a place that wants to be kind of progressive. The university wants to see itself as progressive, but it's actually the most traditional, hierarchical, non-progressive place in many ways. And so I think she's really kind of had it with that. She also yeah. already has tenure, the character yes. does, whereas I don't. So. Well, she speaks and, you know, Mira talks about the pull between not only her teaching, uh, her work, but it's their life in the States and her life in Greece. And she talks quite eloquently, beautifully about that. There's a, there's a side of her that I don't know if exists back in the States. 
And there's a side of her that exists in Greece. Obviously, it's the same. It, it's this. It, she's the same person, but there's there's some difference. And do you feel that pull between the Natalie in the states, the Natalie who teaches in the states, and the Natalie who teaches and travels to Athens? Do you feel a kind of difference? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think some of the reason why I write is I've always had this sense of the sort of fragmented self in one way. And then another way I think, but those are all the parts of the self, right? That's all these things are a part of me. Um, But I do think, I do think there are certain, um, yeah, there's definitely a sense of a sense. I'm a different person here. I just, you know, also when I'm in Greece half the time, even when I'm teaching in Greece, it's just a way more laid back experience to be teaching on a Greek island than to be in a university classroom. So it just allows me to be more relaxed in many ways, whereas I think my um, American self is a little bit more serious in, in some ways. In other ways, I think my Greek self is more timid because I'm hesitant with the language. And so I think I'm often a funny person in English, but I'm not funny in Greek at all. Like I have no humor and I don't always get the idioms and I miss things and things. So, so I think I come off as a little bit um, less funny or slow. <laughs> you know. we, we live in a world of increasingly fragmented selves uh, and fragmented attention, right? Uh, and also fragmented modes of expression. Yes. Sometimes this takes the form of art. Uh, and sometimes it is literally just people expressing themselves on social media or YouTube or whatever. So what does the novel offer us? And I would say continue to offer us, but what does the novel offer us in this age when so many things are shouting for our attention and our time? I think what the novel offers me is just, um, I don't know. I mean, so many... I, th- I like to think of everybody as a re- you know everybody as a reader, but most people are not readers really, and and often people don't want to read fiction because they, it's not true, which always kind of baffles me, because you would never say I don't want to watch that TV drama because it's not true, right? Um, or I don't want to go see a play because it's not true. But something about fiction, often people will have that reaction. But I love what I love about the novel is just the long extended immersion in a consciousness or several consciousnesses, depending on the narration. And I think that's what it offers me um, is just this way of like, if like the idea of um, it's not so much that a novel is about um, reality as it is about existence. And, and I think about that a lot, like the, the, that all novels in some way are existential, even if they're not, Obviously, so and so. I think for me, it offered just the the pleasure of the immersion in a different consciousness and a different way of seeing the world. No matter how that book is told, I think that's why ultimately I I love the novel, um, and and I love the extended form. Although I, I do also love the short story, but I think if I'm being honest, the novel is my true love in, in many ways. And and there's there's a way in which I, I agree with what you're saying. There's a way in which fiction feels true whether or not it's factual right the the fact that it yeah. is fact or not doesn't seem relevant fiction to me sometimes feels more true than lived experience in a strange way that is life flies at us the days fly at us and it's sometimes hard to get a kind of reckoning 
uh, an orientation of where one is. And then you read a book like your book, Scorpion Fish. You read a novel uh, and it feels so true. And it feels as if that is life right there on the page. Yeah. And I guess I lo- I've always loved that. And I love kind of sinking into the language of a novel. I mean, I can also sink into episodes of The Sopranos, right? But, but that's a different kind of dramatic arc. And I love just the drama of the drama that is the drama of life that just comes through language, even if it's not particularly, you know, melodramatic or overly dramatic, but just the, the idea of language on the page and what that can do. And I think in my writing, I'm becoming more interested in what we can do on the page that cannot be done in any other form, whether, whether it's fragmented or, or kind of more traditional narrative, like it's still happening with words on the page unfolding to, to kind of shape a consciousness. Were you always attracted to words? Did you always feel that pull to language? I think reading? so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Both. I mean, I think we're all readers before we're writers. And I was definitely a reader before I was a writer. Um, but yeah, I've always had that pull. You know, I was just thinking of, as I was saying that, how I'm sure we've all gotten these kind of rejections from, from stories or novels or people will say, I just don't, you know, I want something that I'll, that I'll miss my, well, that will make me miss my subway stuff as if this is the ultimate, like, this is the ultimate judge of a good novel is, will it make me miss my subway stop? And I often, I can see that, but I often like things that, I actually have to put down like things that you both want to keep reading, but almost feel too intense. Um, I recently read uh, Sigrid Nunes's new book. Um, what are you going through? And kind of two in a period of insomnia and in just over two days. And it was such a beautiful, but also difficult book in many ways, just the, the things that she's talking about, just about existence and life and death and these big questions that I both wanted to just keep reading it, but I also had to put it down from just, Oh wow, that's that's a lot, and I, I tend to prefer books that do kind of need to be put down and to be thought about, and not just race through to find out what the ending is. You know. Yes. So, um, and you know, we're talking about that fragmented nature of our current age, and and, and in a way, our lives too. You know, I'm fascinated fascinated by the divide between the public life of the artist, the writer, and the private life, because it's in the private sphere that the work gets done right uh but the work that one does that you do is is ultimately a public act so is there a tension for you can you perhaps talk about that tension if there is any between the very public thing that you as a writer make your short stories your novels your nonfiction? i know you write book reviews too and that private sphere which is so necessary to make that work is there a tension? I think yes and no. I mean, absolutely, there's a tension. Writing is a, in some ways very solitary. But for me, it's also a kind of collection of experiences and fragments and memories and images that you sort of take in and they get they come back out in completely different ways, imagined ways and invented ways and everything. And so I find both I find it to be both public and private in a sense. I was reading um the writer Alejandro, Alejandro Zambra was talking about how um for him writing is kind of a collective act like his favorite thing to do is have a manuscript or when he was younger have a manuscript and sit around with a bunch of friends over beers and talk about this title or this scene or whatever and I do find um there there is something about writing that is not just individual um 
the epigraph for Scorpion Fishes for Ante, and, and one of the lines is, uh, we are a crowd of others. And I think so much about everything I write is conversation with, you know, Zadie Smith and Natalia Ginsburg and, you know, all the writers that I've been reading um, throughout my life. I feel like I do kind of lean into that influence as opposed to try to reject it. And so I think that I am always in conversation with everything else I'm reading as one way. And that's also kind of both private public, right? It's something that I'm experiencing in my mind, but it's also something that's out in the world. Um, on a more kind of literal level, I think um, right, I'm definitely an introvert in many ways and teaching is the most extroverted thing you can do, right? You're p- performing, you're also dealing with a room full of egos and sensitive, you know, sensitive people putting their work out there. And so there's something super extroverted about that. Um, and I, or you have to be extroverted about it where then I need a sort of recovery period. Like after every class I have, um, I also need like some downtime. I, so I, I think that um, writing is that kind of allows that deep introversion where you just sort of sink into a story and the hours can go by sometimes you don't notice other times it's super painful and you know you're sitting there and the day goes by and you've written four lines and yeah that's when you want some i think public um interference and right now with the pandemic that that public interference that maybe we would run to is it's not there it hasn't been there all year yeah and, you know, the pandemics, it's kept us, all of us, away from the things we love, the people and the places. And I imagine, as we we alluded to this earlier, that's been the case with you in Greece. Yes. And do you, is is this something you, is is that a place you hope to return to? Oh, the second I can travel again, and I feel, I mean, I'm super, super um, careful with everything and almost to the point of, ridiculousness really now I think there's things that I think are totally safe and I'm not doing them like I don't need to quarantine the mail but I do you know like certain things but the second I feel safe traveling again I'll you know I'll be on a plane to Greece for sure and how wonderful will that be right oh to step into Greece you know reading your book Scorpion Fish and one of the things that uh that book does so beautifully and and one of the ways it was such a treat to read right now in it's kind of the gray of a midwestern incipient winter yeah and a pandemic lockdown is the warmth and the sunshine of athens of the place that you create it's one of the deep pleasures of your book um and i can't imagine how lovely that's going to be when you get to actually step back into that place again I mean, I think traveling is always a privilege and I'm always, you know, aware of this idea that this is, it is a privilege to kind of be able to live between two spaces. But I think I will, the next time I go, I will feel it so deeply. I'll just, you know, every, you know, every meal and every taverna and every swim. And even, I mean, I love swimming in the sea so much that even when I'm in Greece, I count my swims. Like it's a very Greek thing to do. People will say, you know, by the end of May, have you had any swims yet? I've had 17 or whatever. Um, They count their swims through the summer. And I think the next time I will be, you know, counting each swim and just kind of appreciating it all the more. Well, I hope you get back there, Natalie. So I hope hope you have many swims. So Natalie, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Travis. It was so nice to be on your show. And this is a really great podcast. I'm really happy to be a part of it. So thank you. My thanks to Natalie Bacopoulos. 
It was so good getting a chance to talk to her. Her latest novel, Scorpion Fish, is available now. And my thanks to you, listening out there, wherever you are. I'm Travis Holland, and you've been listening to Footnotes to a Novel. Take care. Thank you.